0: Good afternoon, everyone. We are ready for another one of John Clayton's Does God Exist sessions. We have uh, covered quite a bit of territory over the last uh, two to three months now, looks like. We are on uh, Lesson 11, and uh, he has he has covered quite a bit of ground, and uh, we're not going to go back and, and review those. Um, But these, all of these videos are online. And if you go to the doesgodexist.com website, you can find these and uh, watch them again. And uh, shore yourself up on some of these things that are impressive the first time you hear them. And you want to remember them. But with our human frailties, um, we always uh, can't remember... arguments uh, the way he presents them. John is uh, um, an outstanding talent in this area and um, he does a great job. Today he's going to get into a topic uh, that I think um, all of us have contemplated at one time or another. It could have been provoked by pain uh, and or suffering or someone else's pain or suffering. Or it could be just um, wondering why uh, there is so much suffering in the world and and what, what are the causes, what are the reasons behind that. We know that God is love, God is good. Um, and Clayton does, I think, a very good job of explaining why The alternative to God has to exist if God uh, exists. And so uh, he'll he'll talk about that. And so we're going to get right into the video. And then we'll come back and talk a little bit at the end.
1: To the Does God Exist? Video Presentation Number Eleven. The atheist will usually respond to discussions about design and intelligence and purpose by saying, "Well, you know, you can talk about all those examples that you want as far as design and living things and so forth is concerned. The fact is, if there is a God, and if He is anything like the biblical god who you keep talking about being a god of love and compassion and all of those wonderful warm fuzzy attributes then how do you explain human suffering cancer tsunamis birth defects the list goes on and on and on of tragedies and trauma and problems and difficulties Is the world we observe incompatible with the concept of a loving and a merciful God? Connected with this, necessarily, is the question of why are we here? What purpose do we have? Why would an all-wise, all-powerful, all-knowing Heavenly Father create something as dumb and as ugly as me? (laughs) Why do we exist? Now, it's an important subject. It's an area that we need to be concerned about. And one of the things that has to be recognized here is that many times people that criticize the biblical explanations have no explanations of their own. You remember this statement by Richard Dawkins, out of rivers, out of Eden? He says there is no such thing as evil, that there is no such thing as good, that everything is a matter of luck. Some of us are lucky, some of us aren't lucky. We have talked about Huxley's statement, that we are as much a product of chance as is the falling of a stone to earth or the ebb and flow of the tides. But how is that helpful? How does that answer any questions? What tools does it give me to deal with tragedy in my life, with the death of someone that I love? And I'm talking in much of this discussion from the standpoint of practical personal experience. I'd like to point out to you that there's a lot of things we won't talk about here because I think they're so obvious it's redundant to talk about it. The stupidity of man is not a reflection on the integrity of God. It's important to understand that questions like war are not something that God initiated. The only thing you can do with God is to say, why would God allow war? I've had many people challenge me by saying, how can God, if he is a God that we read about in the Bible, have allowed what happened in Hitler's Germany? How could God allow the barbaric practices that have been present in the past? Well, that's a theological issue. What we're saying is that we have a theological or philosophical objection to the way God handled and the lack of God's interference in the affairs of man. The fact is they are still the affairs of man. Man's inhumanity to man is not a reflection on the integrity of God. Some of the things man has done are not areas that are worthy of our discussion. Man's pollution of the world, for example. And I don't think we have come to full grip yet with all of the horrible things that we've done to ourselves by corporate greed, by pollution in the environment. God is not the author of our stupidity. It is our choices that have caused the difficulties. There's an old adage, you can't blame God when you jump off the cliff and hit the bottom. God is not ever going to step in and interfere with the consequences of our stupid actions I don't think that's an area that we can be concerned with I don't think it is a debatable area the very fact that we can sense pain is not an area of discussion you know I've had people say well why didn't God just make us so we can't hurt well we need that sense of pain for our physical survival how would you know if something is hot if you couldn't feel the pain of getting burned? How could you know you need medical attention if you couldn't experience the symptoms of pain that come upon our physical bodies? Again, I don't think there's a need to get in long discussions about the nature of the construction of the physical world. We need pain to survive in the physical world. The bigger issue is the issue of what happens with things that are not caused by man, not caused by man's stupidity or his arrogance or his greed, but things that are a natural product of his environment. There's a particular biblical illustration of this that I, I think we should look at and which we would understand personally, many of us. It's found in John the ninth chapter. We're told in that passage that as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him and said, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, let's stop here for just a minute. Have you ever seen a blind baby? Had a son born blind. A baby unable to see. Let me tell you something, folks. That's not one of life's fun experiences. To have your baby unable to reach out for the rattle. Unable to reach out for the bottle. Unable to mimic. To imitate. To do all the cute little rewarding things that babies do. I watched my wife for months move my child's hand from his plate to his mouth. Just trying to teach him how to feed himself. Simple stuff. And here was a baby born in that condition. And did you notice that the disciples had it all figured out? They knew why this baby was born blind. That's what you and I have already discussed. They just wanted to know who the guilty party was. Master, who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind? But look what happens in verse 3. Jesus answered and said, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents. According to Jesus Christ, it's not always sin. Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. According to Jesus Christ, it wasn't greed, it wasn't pollution, it wasn't any of the things we have discussed so far. And he uses this phrase that the works of God should be made manifest in him. But let me ask you something. Can, can you put yourself in the role of the parents? They've had this blind baby. They've gone through the heartbreak. They've gone through the frustration. They've gone through the social ostracism. They've experienced all the bad things that come from having a child born unfit, which I'll put in quotes. And this itinerant preacher comes in from the boondocks. They didn't know who Jesus was. And somebody asked him, why was this baby born blind? And he says that the works of God should be made manifest in him. you think that helped him out? you think they said, oh, yeah, now I understand. See, many times we're on the wrong side of a problem to see anything good come. From what has happened to us. Later, I think they came to understand that something good could come from the experience they had gone through. But certainly at that time, that was not the case. Now, may I point out to you that, that religious people, I think, frequently give silly explanations for things like this. When we had our son born blind, mentally retarded, with cerebral palsy and muscular dystrophy, and later on we found out he was also going to be blind most of his life, there were people who said, well, God is testing you. God wants to find out whether you're worthy or not. And may I suggest to you that that is a gross misunderstanding of the nature of God. Let me tell you something, folks. God doesn't need to conduct some kooky experiment to figure out whether I'm worthy or not. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. God doesn't need to do some silly experiment, especially at the expense of someone else, to find out whether I'm worthy. We don't understand grace when we make a statement like that. That's a silly explanation. God is not so limited that he doesn't know what's in our hearts and in our minds. Well, somebody says, well, uh, God was, he had this baby and he wanted a special set of parents for him, so God gave you him because he needed special parents and you're special. Well, that's a wonderful complimentary statement. But again, it minimizes the nature of God. God has not taken himself out of the picture. He hasn't wound it up and let it go. It's not that he doesn't know what's going on. Those are silly explanations. But I want to suggest some things to you that some of you may think are pretty radical, but I think they're important, and they're points that I think need to be made to atheists. I go back to the statement by Richard Dawkins that epitomizes the difficulty atheists have with this. Notice his statement. There is no design, no purpose, no good, and no evil, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. The atheist challenge is that my son was born blind because the DNA neither knows or cares. We just dance to its music. My son was born blind because we're a product of chance. And as you look at these statements again, from Dawkins, from Huxley, and from people who are antagonistic to the existence of God, you have to realize they fit much of what we've been talking about. But I'd like to point out to you that from a biblical standpoint, it is important to understand that God is, did not create evil. Now that's important. You know, I, I see people that somehow treat evil like it's a thing, like it's a rock. You know, oh, God created a rock. Oh, God created a big pile of evil over there. Evil's not an object, evil's a choice. It's a choice of sentient beings, beings that have the capacity to know the right difference between evil and, and good. It's not a function of anything animals do. There's no such thing as an evil animal. Evil's not a thing. God did not create evil. Evil is a consequence of the existence of man. And there is no biblical statement that says that God created evil. Now somebody says, well now wait a minute. I I know that there are statements that say that. I mean, like Isaiah 45 and verse seven. I form the light and create darkness, I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do these things. That particular quote, as you see it, is from the King James translation. We're not defending any particular translation of the Bible, we're talking about what the language actually says. The word that is translated evil here is more commonly translated disaster or calamity, and that is certainly the context of this passage. Are all disasters evil? The Nile River flooded every year for centuries. Was that a disaster? Well, yeah, if you lived in that area, it was a disaster. People were flooded out of their homes. Was it evil? Oh, no, no, no. It it made ancient Egypt the breadbasket of the ancient world. Remember your Biblical history? Where did people go when there was a famine in the land? They went to Egypt, did they not? In our day and time, similar situations exist. Why do we have hurricanes? Now, this is something man certainly is most likely not the cause of. Why do we have hurricanes? And the answer to that is that this disaster, the hurricane, is actually extremely important. Here is a, a map of the world. One of the interesting things is that all of the deserts of the world, virtually all of the sizable deserts at least, are located at 30 degrees north and south latitude. Why does that happen? Well, air rises over the equator because of the extra sunlight that is present. As it rises, it cools, condenses, and there is rain, and the rainforest are the consequence of that. That air moves north And south from the equatorial regions and falls back to the earth around 30 degrees north or south latitude. This is called the Hadley cell, if you'd like to look it up in any earth science book. So, all of the world's deserts are located at roughly 30 degrees north or 30 degrees south latitude. Look at the map, and you'll see the Sahara Desert, the Great Chilean Desert, the Australian Outback, the American Southwest. These are all located at 30 (coughs) degrees north and south latitude. What's interesting is that 30 degrees north and south latitude also goes through the very southern part of the United States, through Louisiana, Mississippi, northern Florida, etc. Those areas would be a desert, all things being equal, but all things are not equal. Because of the way the design of the oceans is set up, air rises over the equatorial regions in in the ocean areas and picks up massive amounts of water. This forms hurricanes. As the hurricanes come to the American coastline, they move inland and drop massive amounts of water. This charges the aquifers in the areas. It produces massive amounts of rain that produces swamps that endure throughout the dry seasons. Now, you say, well, yeah, but it also produces a massive amount of damage. Well, it does in modern times. Originally, the coastlines had mangrove swamps. These massive amounts of this very special kind of plant, highly designed for the environment in which they live, broke up the storm surge. So when the storms came ashore, there wasn't a massive storm surge. Originally, in that part of the world, there weren't any really major difficulties to humans, even, who lived there. I had friends who used to talk about hurricane parties in Louisiana because they would simply clamp down, the storm would come through, the winds would blow, their buildings were very adaptable to that type of thing, the mangroves protected them and the shoreline, and water was provided for all living things in the area for the next several months. That's a design feature of the creation. But then man came in and man stripped the mangrove swamps. And built huge buildings on the sandbars where the mangroves used to be. We were even stupid enough to build a city below sea level and then try and dam out the waters that would come against it. It's not the hurricanes that are the problem. They're a calamity. But they are part of the design system that sustained a very delicate ecological system and provided for the humans who lived in that area. There is no passage in the Bible that says that God created evil. And there are numerous passages that indicate that God is incapable of evil, both in causing it and in sustaining it. Example, in James 1, beginning with verse 13, the writer says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man with evil. The bad things that happen to you do not come to you from God. God has no tolerance for evil. He has no capacity for evil. He doesn't produce the tragedies that happen in your life. Now, it's important to understand in this discussion that there is another way to understand evil. And this is a principle that we will discuss in our later presentations in considerable depth. There are two ways God does things. One way God does things is by hands-on, if you will, by direct action. The other way God does things is indirectly. When we study the Genesis account in later discussions about Genesis and evolution and creation and all these areas that come about later on, we will point out the fact that there's even two different Hebrew words that refer to those things that God did directly and miraculously and those things that happen as a consequence of God's existence or of God's will. The Hebrew words bara and asah speak to that end. And we talk about the providence of God. We also talk about the miracles of God. Those are slightly different things. This applies to the discussion of evil. Evil can be looked at as originating, as a consequence of the existence of good. There's a principle of thinking that is called the principle of parity. It's a very interesting principle. It has multiple applications. And I think you're well aware of this principle. You know, for example, that there is such a thing as bilateral symmetry in biology. If something has a left hand, it's going to have a right hand. If something has a left eye, it's going to have a right eye. That's bilateral symmetry. That's the principle of parity. In psychology, we talk about id and ego. Those are parity relationships. In physics, we have the weirdest of all, matter and antimatter. And that really is strange. It's almost bizarre. If there is a matter world made up of positively charged protons and negatively charged electrons, then there should be a antimatter world made of negatively charged protons and positively charged electrons. When the first proponents of this idea presented this, they said, and if you put these together, they destroy each other, producing nothing but energy. And Einstein used that principle. We even have a lab that we do in high school, where we take a beam of electrons and put them in contact with a beam of positrons. Those are positive electrons. They destroy each other. You measure the energy come out to see if E equals MC squared works. It's an interesting study. Matter of fact, we now have discovered these particles are real. Carl Anderson at Caltech discovered the anti-electron, or the positron, in 1959. We have since discovered anti-protons, anti-hydrogen atoms. As a matter of fact, some people think there may be equal amounts of matter and antimatter in the cosmos. Maybe planets made of antimatter, the opposite stuff of which we are made. You can come up with the ultimate soap opera here. About the matter boy that falls in love with the antimatter girl. Except he has a problem, he can't touch her, because if he did, it'll destroy most of their masses. (laughs) Well, it makes more sense than most soap operas. And if you wanted to end it, you can do it beautifully when the two of them decide to have one thermonuclear kiss that wipes out the entire galaxy. It's beautiful. (laughs) But anyway, back to the original discussion. If God is love, then what would be the parody form of love? Well, obviously, hate. I think this is why the Christian system over and over and over talks about a command that you love one another. You can't read 1 John and not see that again and again and again and again and again this is pushed by the Christian writers. Why? Well, if you fill yourself with enough love, there's no room for hate. If God is good, what is the parody form of good? And the obvious answer is bad, evil. And do you understand what this says? This says that evil is not something that God sat down and deliberately and maliciously created so that people could sin and be lost eternally. Evil is a consequence of the existence of good. If God is good, if God is love, there has to be the absence of good. There has to be the absence of love. And that is what evil is about. And it's important to understand this is not a dualism suppose I had a a piece of literature here that is pornography but suppose that I throw it away don't look at it nobody else looks at it does it have any influence the answer is no in order for the pornography to have some influence it has to get into somebody's head evil was not equal to good because it had no vehicle through which it could operate. God was good. God was love. So good and love had a vehicle through which they could operate. But evil did not. But the Bible tells us that God has created beings, sentient beings, other than ourselves. We have a name for these beings. We call them angels. And angels, sentient beings, have the capacity to choose between good and evil, and some have chosen evil. They say, well, how do you know that? The Bible says that. Look, for example, at 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned. So angels have sinned. In Jude, the sixth verse, we read, the angels which kept not their first estate. There's a passage in Timothy that says, be careful you do not incur the evil that Satan incurred. So beings other than ourselves have chosen evil. Now somebody might say at this point, well, I don't understand that. Why didn't God just make us so we can't sin? Why didn't God just make us so we can't mess up? Then we wouldn't have all these problems. But we're not thinking very much when we say something like that, because some of the most important things that exist in your life exist because you have this choice. Like love. How is it possible for somebody to love you because they have the capacity not to love you. If they had no choice, then love would be impossible. And if you don't believe that, let me make it radically, dramatically evident to you. If there is sexual love without choice, what do we call it?
2: Yeah,
1: rape. Is rape love? Oh, no. Rape is the deliberate Malicious exploitation of another human being. It has nothing to do with love. Would you really want to live in a world with no love? So it's important to realize you cannot force love. Love is impossible unless there is choice. You know, it's interesting that the biblical perspective has always been this way. You go back to Deuteronomy 28, and you see God spelling this out for the Israelites. In the first 14 verses, he says to them, Now look, if you'll live the way I've called you to live, if you'll do what I've called you to do, if you will conduct yourselves as I have said to conduct yourself, here's what will happen. You won't have war. You won't have disease. You won't have conflict. Your kids will be healthy. You won't have any problems with your neighbors. He goes on and on and on. For 14 verses telling them all the wonderful things that will happen if they will live as god has called them to live and then he picks it up in verse 15 and for 53 verses he tells them the consequences of not living as god has called them to live you will have war you will have conflict your children will get sick you will be taken over by your enemies you will find yourself in slavery on and on and on and on oh well given that kind of a choice The nation of Israel would certainly live as God has called them to live, right? (laughs) You know the history of Israel. But before you point any finger at Israel, there's some fingers pointing back at you because look at our country today. Look at our culture today. And are we not doing the very same thing? In our next presentation, we want to talk about spiritual warfare. What does that mean? How does that fit into this discussion? And what purpose do we have? I would like to mention to you that we have a website titled whypain.org that goes through much of the material we're talking about here. We also have a book titled The Problem of Human Suffering, which deals with some of those obvious things that we didn't spend time on. These materials are available not only on the web, but if you have an interest in them being mailed to you, all you need to do is to contact us. And we will be glad to send them to you free of charge. We also have a little booklet, which is titled The Death of a Child, which is a special consideration of this particular subject and how it fits that particular issue. And as Christians, when we hit a problem where a child dies, it's a very special problem. And this little booklet is a study of that particular issue. So we hope you'll spend some time thinking about this, looking at the choices
0: and we'll, talk next with us with well, that's a topic that we don't talk about very often. From time to time, we'll we'll get into that discuss those discussions with friends of ours, um, maybe uh, during a time of crisis or a time of of sorrow or pain and suffering. Um, as, as he was uh, talking there, um, I was reminded of the question, why is it that um, we have so much success in third world countries with converting folks to Christianity and we struggle so much with converting uh, those here in our own country to Christianity, and uh, was reminded uh, Mark Twain, uh, he said some very uh, unfair things toward religion uh, in his life, and he was talking about the missionaries who go to the islands uh, out in the Pacific, and uh, the people out in the, in the islands there were uh, living in, in paradise, and, and uh, here here come the missionaries and make things difficult mm-hmm. for them. Uh, teach them uh, the gospel, and then they have to worry about putting clothes on and, and things of that sort. And And he makes this statement. He says, oh, missionaries, compassionate missionaries, come home and convert us Christians. And I thought, well, that's an interesting way uh, to phrase that. And he was talking about the nature of those who profess to be religious um, not being uh, religious at all. But back to my original point there, why is it that people have more success, or appear to have greater success? Why is it easier, if indeed it is, to teach the gospel in a third world nation than it is here?
2: There's a lot of things that go into that question, right? So. We're pretty comfortable.
0: I didn't I didn't set him up ahead of time. I yeah. didn't tell him I was going to ask him this. Go ahead.
2: Uh, so we're pretty comfortable here. Uh, heaven's not too far away almost. It feels like we can just kind of be really happy and really content here. So what I need heaven for. Um, so that's kind of, it's kind of a hard obstacle to get over. Um, oh. A variety of other things come into play. Uh, you got anything? Yeah. In- <sighs> Uh, in uh,
0: fact, the word I had written down here was comfort. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Comfort operates against religion. Um, why do you think God speaks so much against rich people in the Bible? Um, it's more difficult for a man to enter the eye, go through an eye of a needle. And whether that has first century connotations or not, it's still difficult then enter the kingdom of God. It's, it's as, as difficult for him to go through that as it is to enter the kingdom of God, or, or something to that effect. And it's this idea of comfort. When we as human beings don't need to rely on anything else, at least as far as we know, here in this life, when we have people to wait on us hand and foot, when we have all the luxury and and all the items that we would want that appeal to uh, the side of man which would fall under comfort um, then why would I pursue something else I don't need anything else and my guess um, about why we do have so much success in other countries is that so many of them have no hope I have a, a group of doctoral students in, in a class right now, and one of them is from Africa. <clears throat> I don't remember which country in Africa, but he says, I have seen some some really horrible, horrific things happen to people, to human beings, just because there is a group that's in power, and these have none. They have nothing. They are as poor as they can be. And those with the power come in and abuse those that don't have it. And I'm thinking, what must it be like on a day-to-day basis to be hungry, to, uh, uh, to live in, uh, in extremely uh, horrible, uh, bare conditions on a day-to-day basis, to constantly fear for your life uh, at the hand of someone else who uh, can take your life like that, um, if they want, would an alternative appeal to me? (laughs) Well, of course. The problem is that alternative is not here and now. Yes, maybe we can do something for those people, maybe we can get them out of that situation, but that's not what I'm talking about. Religion offers us an answer An alternative, a better hope. The book of Hebrews, which I talk a lot about, talks about why God set up things as He did under um, the old law, and how He interacted with with the children of Israel the way He did, and um, how Jesus, in so many ways, offers something better. The word "better" comes up either in in those letters or something close to it, um, many times in Hebrews. A better priesthood, a better covenant, a better hope, and and one of those that hope thing. And we've talked about it in here, uh, I believe, uh, when we were talking back and on on types, biblical types. If you lose hope. That is your last vestige of motivating you. So, when people live in extremely dire circumstances and dire situations, and you can provide them with hope, there is something better after this life. Yes, you're in horrible, horrible circumstances. But you know what? that's going to end one of these days and it'll be a relief when it does at least you won't be in pain and suffering all the time but even on the other side of that if you take hold of what i'm offering you right now then everything's going to be good everything's going to be great and i can't i can't tell you what heaven is actually going to be like. I can read passages out of the Bible to you, but I think those are just uh, images. Those are uh, visualizations that appeal to us as human beings, as we've said, and as Clayton has said, God deals in a dimension outside of our own. How are we going to comprehend Him and what He has to offer? He puts it in our terms. He puts it in streets of gold and, and rivers of, of crystal water and things of, things of that sort. Which um, should, I guess, make us think, oh, it's going to be really great. Bingo. It's going to be really great. <laughs> what it's going to be like, I don't know. Um, and and it, But uh, it's something that is vastly different than what we experience here in this life. So... Let's move from that person who has so little in this world to us. Do we experience comfort in this life? Considerably. And considerable comfort. Um, Even the uh, poorest of us here in the United States, in some countries, would be considered wealthy. Now, I know there are people who go to bed hungry. Um, I know there are homeless on the streets. Um, I know there are situations that I know that I don't even know about. And, And it makes it difficult for me to get these words out of my mouth, but I am told by other individuals that even the poorest among us here in the United States would be considered at least middle class if not in the wealthy class in other countries that kind of difference exists for the majority of us any of you people who are looking at this right now more than likely experience considerable comfort in your life comfort is a rich (laughs) if you can have riches can you have a rich (laughs)
2: <laughs> Comfort
0: is uh-huh. is is a luxury. Comfort um, allows us to think about other things other than discomfort. Granted, many of us live with pain all the time. Uh, many of us have uh, conditions and 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 situations in life that that um, that make this life difficult to experience and to go through. Granted, many of us don't. And many of us who who don't suffer on a regular basis probably have a little bit more difficulty thinking about relief, thinking about heaven, thinking about a place where there is no pain, no suffering, no sorrow, no tears, All of those types of things. Now those things we can identify with. We know what pain and sorrow and tears are here in this life. When God describes heaven in that way, at least we can wrap our hands around it and our minds around it a little bit better. So, this promise of relief, this promise that there is a better Life in the next life um, ought to appeal to us. Um, all the evil and, and bad things that, that Clayton talked about um, on, on this earth and in this life, um, there will be an end to that at some point. And things will be better for us but only if we are children of God. Our descriptions of hell are the same way. I don't know what it's going to be like. I don't know if it's going to be a, uh, as some have said, a spiritual torment being separated from God for eternity and knowing that we could have been on the other side of the, of the coin and now we are here, stuck here, separated from God um, throughout eternity. The Bible describes it in physical terms because that's what we know in this life. Um, The pain and the suffering and the fire and the torment and and the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth and all of of those passages come to mind. Um, But once again, that is reserved for those who, like the angels, chose not to remain in their original estate in heaven. And um, if God is not going to spare them, then he is not um, going to spare us. Would you like to say anything? Before?
2: Just uh, to tag on to your comfort idea. Comfort's kind of a funny thing because the more you have of it, the more you want of it. <laughs> so we've kind of gotten very accustomed <clears> to being comfortable and you start thinking, well, like I've got air conditioning, so I'm comfortable. Uh, but I want a second or a third car. I want an RV. I want, you know, these extra little um, bits of comfort that make life so enjoyable here. And when you go overseas somewhere, it's not that they don't have them; it's that they don't have access to them. It's that they don't have access to even the the, the people who are the poorest among us. Have access to homeless shelters and to benefits, and there's 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 help there. But for those folks, there's nothing there. You know, there's there's no way to get assistance. They're just left out on their own. And so when you start talking about hope, and there's a place where there's no pain, that resonates with them. And, it, and I'm, I'm afraid it doesn't resonate as mm. soundingly as re, as resoundingly as it ought to with us in 21st century American Christianity.
0: Um, have you ever been taken advantage of or worse been taken for granted by a loved one being taken for granted is um, hurts when you do something for someone else you give of your time for them, because, let's say you love them because you they're, uh, they need you, uh, what, whatever the, the reason or the rationale is, you put out and they uh, accept or take. And then at some point, that person <coughs> ceases to be thankful for your effort, and they begin to expect it. They take you for granted. All of a sudden that good the will that uh, made you want to do this for this person has a downside to it. Now, maybe a good Christian would just look past that and continue uh, to do the good even though mistreated and that's probably what we should do. It's
2: hard. It's
0: hard. <laughs> It's human nature, and you know what? I think it's God nature also.
2: Yeah.
0: Comfort in this life, as as uh, Chris said, we tend to want more of it, or we tend to we we certainly expect that it's going to continue. We don't think things are going to be taken away that that are wrapped into this ball called called comfort and we start taking it for granted that it will always be there and in doing so we forget what it was like when we didn't had it, have it if we came through a process like that most of us were you know born into families that were uh, middle class Uh, lower middle class, upper middle class, and so um, we have always had these comforts, maybe not as much as we currently have now, but we don't appreciate them as much as we should. You know, saying you don't know what you got until it's gone. Okay? Suppose someone came, took away your house, took away your car, took away your job, Would you appreciate them more when you got them back? I think so. Um, And my point in all of this um, is that we should be extremely, extremely thankful and grateful and appreciate what we have rather than take it for granted. And I'm not going to get into... um, the discussion about where that comfort comes from, whether, you know, uh, how much of it we owe to ourselves, how much of it we owe to our country, how much we owe to God, all of that. I mean, that—that's to me, that's an individual decision. um, And I have my own ideas on that. But um, all of us need to think about these three points. And this is is as far as I'm going to go with that. Granted, first of all, in the Old Testament, God did what Clayton said. He acted. He influenced. He was a hands-on God. We get up into the, uh, the period between the Testaments. <clears throat> we don't have any um, inspired literature from that time period. We don't have any examples of, of miracles that were taking place, God actively doing things um, on the earth at that time. I guess He could have been, we just don't have uh, a record of that. Although I say that and miracles always had a point to teach and maybe it would have taught those people but it's certainly not going to benefit us if we don't if we don't know about them i digress <laughs> um, so first century comes around john does his preaching jesus comes jesus works miracles um, his miracles were for the purpose to confirm the words and he said you my apostles will do the same you will do signs and wonders so that they might believe that you are of me. Um, these signs shall follow you. Um, Mark 16, 15, 16, Matthew 28. So, um, but they had a purpose, those miracles did. And it was a direct, obvious exposure of God inserting Himself into our otherwise unmiracleless miracleless lives. That that's my assumption, and maybe there were other things going on along that uh, that that would qualify as miracles. But we need to define what miracles are, and so forth. So when I say these three circumstances, um, we're talking about different eras that God has operated in. And when we talk about today, either, as some would say, God controls everything. God influences everything. God makes babies born blind with muscular dystrophy and what else did his child have? Uh, it was horrible.
2: Yeah.
0: Horrible conditions for a baby. Um, or he influences and controls nothing, or some he does, some he doesn't. That's a philosophical question that we're not going to get into today because we can't we can't uh, resolve that in eight minutes. We probably couldn't resolve it in eight years. So, uh, but but to me those that's a reality. It's one of those three situations: God controls everything, God controls nothing, or some things he does and some things he doesn't, or influences, if you want to call it. That Can we know when God is involved in something? Now I know there are a bunch of people out there that say definitely It wasn't going to happen without without God's um, action And they may be absolutely right And far be it from me to say no, um, that's not the case Misfortune, oh I like this statement Uh, the, The stupidity of man is not a comment on the integrity of God Mm -hmm. Um, his point about God is not the author of evil God doesn't deal in evil you can't tempt God and God does not tempt man evil is an outgrowth of the fact that there is good and man given the choices he has God has created man to have choice. Well, why didn't he just create everybody so that they wouldn't sin? Well, how appealing would heaven be if, they, if there was if there was no sin, there would probably be no pain, suffering, anything of that sort.
2: Think about it like this, like what kind of relationship would you have with your spouse if they were forced to love you? If if you could program them like you would a computer, that's not love, right? That's compulsion, but it's not love. And at the very center of God, he, he seems to want us to choose Him, choose Him over these, this laundry list of things, whatever else is important—the comforts, the nice things that we have. Choose Him over these things. To do that, we have to be able to choose.
0: That's right. Uh,
2: and if we ch- if we have the ability to choose, obviously we're going to choose stupid things sometimes, and that's like He says, not a um, degradation of His integrity, but of ours. <laughs>
0: um. Life is a series of choices, as Chris said. Choices about everything. Choices to choose God, not God. Choices to get up in the morning, stay in bed. Choices to love someone, not love someone. Choices. And years ago, I was in uh, down in uh, New Orleans. Uh, my wife and I spent 25 years down there. And uh, there was a preacher who uh, was, was uh, speaking at our congregation. And he said he has two young sons. Had two young sons at that point. They were maybe in teenagers or something. And one of them had, had done something, and he called uh, that he shouldn't have. And he uh, got both of them in and sat sat them down. And and he said to his, his sons. And this is the first time. And this was years ago. The first time that I ever heard this presented. I've heard it presented in, in numerous times since then. But it was the first time where he said, "Boys." Life is full of choices. You can go this way or you can go that way. You can do this, you can do that. He says, but for every choice, there's a consequence. And there are going to be consequences for good choices. Let's hope that they are good consequences. I would think that they would tend to be more often than not. And there are consequences for bad choices focus on the good ones try to reach for those good consequences that are the result of good choices he says because there are some choices you're going to make which you might not be able to recover from a bad choice here and there could be catastrophic says so just know that as you go through life, you're going to be presented with options. I can go this way, or I can go this way. If I go this way, there are going to be negative consequences. If I go this way, chances are they may not be 100% good, but they're going to be better than that than that negative uh, consequence. Life's full of choices, <clears throat> and choices have consequences. And that is that is that is a lesson that all of us try to learn all of our lives the very fact that all of us sin suggests that we make bad choices we have alternatives and we just go the wrong way our goal as we mature in Christ is to live our lives closer to that which Jesus lived, we'll never get there Jesus was perfect. However, as Paul says, if we let Christ live within us and let his will that we find in the Bible influence our choices, they can't help but be better choices than those if we just rely on ourselves.
2: I think his logic is really important in this one, uh, like in all of them obviously, but It sounds like a really strong argument that there's no way that there could be a loving, compassionate God just because there's all this pain and chaos in this world. But when you start looking at the opposite side of that logic, it's just as strong, you know, stronger. There's got to be, obviously there's evil in the world. If you push anybody far enough, they'll agree that there's evil in the world. If there's evil, there has to be good. <laughs> this is like he's saying, there's there's two components here. Um, if there's... If we have... Since we have choices, uh, we're going to make bad choices and we're going to hurt each other, we're going to hurt ourselves. All this is not a denial of God's existence, but the evidence of his existence. Um, so, watch the logic yeah, in, in his video and follow that train of thought.
0: If... Um if I didn't believe this and I didn't think that there was a heaven I have a feeling and I'm not one that that leans toward uh, depression and um, feeling down and moody but if I didn't think that there was something better than this life as comfortable as I am there's still a lot of junk that we have to put up with I think I would be depressed and sad all the time.
2: Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities.
0: I mean, there would be no reason for hope Um, if in this life that's all there was. There is more in this life, and it's called the next one. Uh, I can't remember what his next topic was. Uh, Next week, I have not looked ahead. But he's going to get farther and farther into... Um, type the types of things that he's talking about here as we go through these lessons and uh, they're deep he talks about things that uh, we don't uh, think about a lot of times uh, or have answers for a lot of times but he is doing us a grand favor by confronting these and doing so in a way that we can kind of at least understand All right. we'll see you guys next week for that see y'all next week